0: Welcome back to the Blue Economy Podcast. I'm your host, David Hirschman, and the world has changed quite a bit since we last put out an episode. In that light, we're recording in a socially distant manner, and we've got a few new guests teed up to talk about how everything's changing. Our guest today on the podcast is Amy Harder. She's a journalist with Axios and is considered one of the preeminent reporters covering the energy industry. And I'm excited to get her take on how the current coronavirus crisis is going to affect energy and the environment, both in the near term and then further down the line. Um, So obviously, the coronavirus is on everyone's mind. um, And, you know, we sort of wanted to dive right into, you know, where do you think this crisis, um, first of all, you know, what has it done so far to the energy industry? And kind of, you know, what do you think are some of the long term effects?
1: Well, the coronavirus uh, is leaving no stone unturned in terms of its impact around the globe. It is really staggering how it's upending every industry that is on this planet. And energy and climate change is is no exception. I would say the two biggest things I'm watching uh, are the collapse of the oil industry, which is historic in nature. Uh, partly because the oil industry was already doing poorly before this crisis. Uh, And now with oil demand dropping off an unprecedented cliff, uh, they're doing even worse. Uh, And then the second thing I'm watching is just to your point initially, like what does this do for big action on climate change? The world was reaching a, a high point, a, a high watermark, so to speak, about action on climate change and at least the rhetoric to, to say to do big things on climate change. And now, given the imminent crisis of the coronavirus, we are having to, uh, to adjust and uh, it'll just be a matter of time until we see whether or not that comes back.
0: That, you know, obviously um, people are traveling a lot less. Um, you know, there's we're, there's a lot of sort of savings of fuel and for that kind of thing. Um, and obviously air, air travel has gone way down. Um, you know, I guess, what does this mean ultimately for fossil fuels and energy reliability?
1: Well, from an, an oil and gas perspective, uh, the, the world has been awash in oil and to a lesser extent natural gas for the better part of the last several years, ever since the last oil price collapse in 2014. So uh, the numbers uh, rolling around about the drop-off in demand, it's just incredible. It's 25% of the world's about uh, 99 million barrels a day of oil. Uh, So to me, that's incredible on two levels. One, it's 25%, you know, 25 million barrels, poof, gone, basically overnight, as many of us are working from home, both because we're driving less and flying less. But then also, it's also like 75 million barrels of oil are still being used. Uh, And and I think that shows, again, just how ingrained oil is to our global economy. I, I think longer term, what it says for oil and gas is that given there's very little returns and literally some companies are having to pay people to take their oil that some experts i've talked to say that that could perversely improve the prospects of some of these oil companies to ramp up their investments in renewables because their argument which does hold merit is that oil has traditionally had a better return on investment than renewables But of course now that's not the case. So that argument is gone. And so I think there are some companies, BP being uh, the outlier leading edge of this already, uh, to say that they're going to double down on climate change and the volatile oil market is just evidence of the need for that transition. I think some other companies, particularly those in the U.S., are not going to see that urgency, in part because they're in crisis mode, that they're, if they can't survive, they can't think about transitioning. And I, so I think that's a luxury the bigger companies have. I think on coal, the other fossil fuel that I haven't yet mentioned, I think there it's not... I don't see as much of a crisis moment. They've been in a slow, you know, slow moving crisis for quite some time here in the United States. I have seen reports out of China saying that they may ramp up some of their coal use as a way to re-energize their economy after coronavirus. So I do see a potential increase there than what would have happened otherwise, but I don't see a huge change there.
0: With, you know, everybody staying at home, obviously, like, you know, office buildings are saving a lot on energy and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, everyone is on Zoom calls all day, for instance. You know, have you seen, uh, you know, the impact of energy use going up residentially as opposed to, um, you know, or or I guess what are some of the stats around that?
1: Right. So um, a Houston-based analytics company called InnoWatts actually crunched some numbers for me recently that showed... Uh, residential energy use uh, would go up about six to eight percent. That's what they were seeing in the early stages of the shutdowns, some of the areas that had already shut down. Uh, But that's been more than offset by the 25 to 30 percent decline in energy consumption of, uh, of businesses and schools. So on a net, that's actually positive when it comes to energy consumption and efficiency. However, from a pocketbook perspective, it's actually not good uh, for people who are staying home because they can't go to work or have lost their jobs. They it's those individuals who have to pay that increase of six to eight percent. As opposed to when we go to work, you know, we shut off our lights, we turn down our AC or heat and then our employers pay the electricity bill where we work, and you know, that's not the case. So unfortunately, even though the overall system is seeing improvements with this in terms of energy demand decreasing, the people who have to pay the increase um, are unfortunately the people who are suffering from this recession.
0: So, you know, ultimately, on this podcast, we're most concerned about how these changes will affect ocean industries, um, and in particular, renewables like offshore wind. Um, So what do you think, generally, this crisis will mean for renewables, both kind of like short term and then long term? Um, And, I guess, how does cheaper oil affect the potential or need for energy innovation?
1: Right. Well, I think the renewable industry, wind and solar, are really facing some near-term crises of supply chain problems out of China, for example. Uh, And the overall, I've heard some concerns about access to capital and and, and tax issues. So there's been a push by some renewable companies to get uh, extensions of of tax credits and whatever the next round of stimulus legislation that Congress considers. And I think there's a, a good chance of that happening. Uh, in part because there's a lot of sort of pieces in the oil side of the equation that Republicans want. And the way Washington works is one side wants something, then the other side pairs it up, and then they go together as sort of a grand bargain. Uh, So I do see that being a potential likely uh, thing to occur. I think longer term, from what I've read from Bloomberg New Energy Finance and other analysts, is that this will drastically slow the the installments of renewable energy around the world this year, but that it won't reverse it. I think for a place like offshore, um, offshore wind that had been seeing a lot of great potential but was unfortunately already facing delays, the Trump administration has been moving slowly on that front for reasons unrelated to the coronavirus. And so I think that again, will be affected somewhat, but perhaps not quite as much because it's still so early that a delay of like a year or so won't, you know, completely change the trajectory of the the sector because it was already moving slowly.
0: Is the expectation that like as soon as things open up again, like all of a sudden the, you know, everything sort of pops back to where it was, or is there, are, are there sort of long-term consequences, you know, that for, particularly for renewables, but also for, you know, I guess just energy use? Like, are, you know, one thing I was thinking about was like if people start getting used to working from home and maybe they won't go to offices as much, maybe they won't commute as much, or something like that.
1: I think that's one of the, the most intriguing questions that I think a lot of us are asking right now. Uh, about what will stick um, in terms of our own personal habits and versus our professional habits. I think um, obviously it's really hard to tell now, but I think uh, longer term, in terms of like the trajectory of the sector, again, I I don't see uh, anything changing significantly there. Uh, I do think to the degree that we work from home more, I think most of those changes will be somewhat on the edges in terms of the of, of changes on energy and climate change. What I see as being the potentially biggest long-term detrimental impact is the fact that the world, which had already been going sort of a nationalistic direction, is really literally doing that now. Pe- countries are putting up borders and closing their countries to everybody except for residents. and so. That will make any multilateral discussion that much harder. And of course, climate change is the ultimate multilateral global problem. So I think long term, that's going to make those types of conversations much more difficult. And all of us, this entire world, essentially, we're all coming at it now from a position of economic weakness, which, again, in a recession, that's always harder to get people to care about longer term problems. And just one more point on that, uh, particularly dire situation could be coming out of the Middle East because those countries are heavily dependent upon oil income to run their countries. And this unprecedented, again, um, in energy and climate change, everything is connected. So bringing it back to the comment about the, the persistently low oil prices, if those stay in the $20 to $30 barrel range, that wipes out half or more of some of these countries' income uh, to run their countries. And then so that that doesn't, those problems don 't stay in the middle east; they they, they bubble up in negotiations and, and climate change and other things and so I just think that would be my my comment about the biggest long term impact is that it just makes climate change negotiations even harder than they already were
0: we, uh, actually sort of going along with that, you know maybe uh, could we talk a little bit about kind of the some of the environmental impacts that you 've seen happening so far, and then also um, you know, you you recently wrote about the cancellation of the COP uh, 28 meeting. Um, why is that such a big deal? the lasting impacts?
1: Yeah, I think it was increasingly obvious that the the conference would have to be canceled just because everything is being canceled in this world, this grave new world as I have been calling it. Uh, I think the main reason it had to be canceled wasn't because in December we're all still going to be locked down or November, which is when it's being held. Hopefully by then we have some sort of um, normalcy back to our, our lives, but it's because the meetings that were leading up to that, they've been had to be canceled. And, you know, yes, you can do a lot of things over Zoom, but you can't do everything over Zoom. And some of these these conferences aren't just exhibits for people to show off their shiny new, you know, climate technology. They, they're, they're in the room looking at text. And and so, it's, so some of these meetings, I think the negotiators have said, really do need to be done in person. Uh, so it's, that seemed inevitable. And some people have also said that, oh, it's it's good that it's being rescheduled so people can focus on um, can have more time to focus on it. By springtime, hopefully, you know the crisis moment of this uh, historical time in our lives will have passed and we'll be on to a new stage. And that's true. Uh, It's sort of the lesser of two evils, right? So I think it's historic that it had to be uh, pushed ahead. Uh, As far as I understand, countries still. You know they were supposed to even before this crisis hit. They were supposed to be in the process of submitting their 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 next level of ambitions for the Paris Climate Deal from 2015. And a lot of countries have not. Some countries have, like Japan, uh, just recently, and it was greeted by uh, not a lot of cheers from people who said it wasn't aggressive enough. So I think it's just a sign of the times that a slow moving but still incredibly urgent uh, challenge facing our planet has to be put on the back burner when people are dying around the world. And I think this shows both the urgency of climate change, but also the fact that it's not as urgent as some other crises that this world is, is facing. And that's just the nature of the problem.
0: I guess, you know, one thing I was thinking that it, basically because every country on the planet is dealing with the you know coronavirus crisis at the same time. Like, could that be some sort of model for everybody thinking that we're all in this together in the same way for climate change? Or I don't know if there's like a, you know, there, there are lessons to be learned from that.
1: I would say two things on that. The lesson that I think could be learned uh, is, is having faith or you know, acknowledgement of science in general. A lot of the debate in the coronavirus crisis has been about flattening the curve and and really doing things now that will help you later, even though that seems difficult for all of us to do. I mean, it's very similar to climate change. Like we need to, you know, reduce our emissions now to help us later. Of course, the time frame is much longer. So you know having having belief and acknowledgement of science, even if it doesn't really fit with your own values, I think that's something that hopefully some people will uh, learn. Of course, there's still people who are thinking all this coronavirus crisis stuff is a bunch of overreaction, which of course is, is not the case. Um, but the second point, which sort of cuts against any sort of good, uh, accurate likeness of the two problems is that Coronavirus hits everybody the same. Everybody in the world. If you get it, you have a cough or a fever. Whereas climate change does not hit the world the same. You know, Australia is facing it more than a lot of countries because of their historically dry uh, um, climate, for example, California as well. There's parts of Russia that in the next few decades will benefit from climate change. So uh, even though we're all on this one planet and we share this planet, climate change itself hits different parts of the world differently. And so that's what makes it very very uniquely different than the coronavirus, which is everybody the same. So I think that makes it even harder to address climate change. Uh, same like the Middle East. There, you know, Saudi Arabia once, and a, nego- a negotiator for their country once said at a United Nations conference that I attended, the negotiator said, if you think about it, we're really the ones doubly affected by climate change and action on climate change because they're an arid country uh, that's set to get drier and hotter, but they're also an economy based on oil. So putting aside the moral uh, component that they've helped drive the problem, they're actually right that they do. They, they face uh, impacts both by not acting and by acting. Whereas coronavirus just hits its all the same. So I think there are some important analogies to be made, but also some important differences that I think climate advocates would be smart to be aware of so you don't come off as tone deaf. In this historic public health crisis, comparing them too much alike could, could make them come off as tone deaf.
0: What do you think are some of the effects on, um, I guess, environmental research. You know, obviously the EPA is basically on hold and a lot of scientists are unable to compete uh, complete the research that they're doing. Um, will that have any impacts or are there stuff you're reading about the, around that?
1: Well, one thing I've noticed just anecdotally is that a lot of my colleagues at other news publications uh, are actually doing coronavirus coverage strictly now. Um, no connection to climate change. And I, I've seen some data that has already shown a drop off in news of climate change. I anticipate that to be temporary. I think those reporters will go back to doing climate change coverage. I myself have also been doing less climate coverage, but I also uh, I've been doing still energy coverage. Um, but I, but I do think that it's an important story to to talk about and write about, even if it isn't on the top of the, the agenda in terms of the research. I think I haven't heard of anybody uh, you know, changing their plans for the types of research that they're doing. I think one risk could be with with funding and grants. I think all of that, again, is just the economy is just drying up. And I think that will be one area that could see a bit of a hangover uh, as the economy picks back up. I think there'll be, you know, the scientific community is just racing to find a vaccine and to uh, find solutions to this crisis that I think in the short term, there'll be you know, some sort of delay. But I don't think you know, academia moves so slowly anyways that I don't think it'll, there'll be a huge
0: impact. So uh, you know, the virus, is, I think, has exposed a lot of weaknesses in our systems. Um, and certainly, you'd expect that in the aftermath, companies of all types, you know, obviously, ocean-related companies for our purposes, but companies of all types would want to figure out ways to mitigate future damage from similar disruptions like this. Um, so, you know, I guess what are some of the areas in the energy section where you think we could potentially see innovation in the aftermath of this?
1: Yeah, I've gotten that question a couple of times and I don't have, I I don't see a lot of great potential right now for a ton of innovation. I think that's partly because this is such an unprecedented type of crisis that caught all of us most of us off guard, the crisis itself, and then, of course, the response to it, which is shutting everything down. I think there will inevitably be some innovation. For example, in the oil industry, going back to what um, Bernard Looney, the new CEO of BP, has said, he's really saying that his company will double down on... Uh, addressing climate change. And I think, again, some companies, I would venture to say mostly European-based companies, will see this historic volatility in the oil industry as an example of let's get the hell out of a commodity business and be somewhere where there's a little bit more stability, putting aside concerns about climate change. But obviously, those um, come into into play as well. In terms of innovation in the renewable energy space, I think one thing that could be really dependent upon that is to what degree they get some financial help to to be able to innovate I think right now there's a lot of people just in crisis mode so they're focused on just staying afloat uh, um, this this incident this time of our lives reminds me of uh, going back to the two thousand eight and nine crisis uh, when Obama came into office and passed you know the Recovery Act that bill injected ninety billion dollars into clean energy that was a record amount and many Energy experts say that was arguably the biggest thing the federal government has ever done to support renewable energy. So there's a lot of ifs in what I'm about to say, but if, you know, the economy continues to do poorly, which seems pretty likely, unfortunately, and if, you know, Joe Biden wins the uh, the election or Bernie Sanders, but looking more like Biden every day, uh, I could see more now than I could six months ago, I could really see a climate change focus on any sort of big economic recovery package that his administration might pursue. But it wouldn't be something like the Green New Deal. It wouldn't probably require congressional support of, you know, in terms of big sweeping uh, market-wide policies, but it could be another round of big government support for clean energy. And if that happens, to come back to your original question, that's when I could really see innovation happen in the renewable energy space. But I think between now and then, I mean, everybody's just trying to keep their head above water. and. And and so I think the innovation phase would come a little bit later, you know, the next six to nine months.
0: I guess, I, you know, I was thinking more in, in terms of, like, supply chain and stuff like that. Like, you know, like, say, like, in the kind of the oil industry, like, you, you so suddenly, you've like, been faced with this crazy disruption. How do you, like, you know, plan for, say it happens again, you know?
1: Right. Well, I think, you know, one response, which President Trump has, has talked about a lot, is finding more places to store oil, which is not very innovative. But, I, you know, I think the, the issue with oil is somewhat unique. It's a global commodity, and it's never not going to be a global commodity. So I think the only way to innovate around that um, is something that, of course, a lot of climate and energy security experts say, which is to be less dependent upon oil. Uh, And again, going, you know, I think that would take a Democratic president to really try to ramp up um, the innovation in that space. I mean, right now we're seeing the opposite, right? I mean, the Trump administration just finalized new fuel efficiency standards that scale back significantly what the Obama administration had done sales of electric vehicles were already slowing down even before the coronavirus hit. So I think with gasoline prices, you know, through the toilet and, you know, they will rise in the coming months, but they'll still be relatively low. I think um, EVs will find it a challenging environment as well. So, you know, I think it's a, you know, because this really isn't an energy crisis. It's a public health crisis and energy is just one of every single other industry that's caught up in it. So I think that the chances for innovation in the short term seem to me to be less acute than, you know, if this was like an oil price shock in the opposite direction that they were going through the roof. Well, I think one dynamic that we've seen covered a lot in the media and which I've covered as well, because it gets a lot of attention. And I think it's important to sort of put it into context is that because the coronavirus is uh, creating this unprecedented shutdown in economic activity, we are seeing, not surprisingly, a uh, result uh, decrease in pollution, you know, emissions. And and so people are saying, oh, that's a positive side effect. And, and I, to which I say, no, it's definitely not a positive side effect. It merely shows that in order to, to reduce our emissions significantly, we have to shut down the economy. So it, the analogy that I use it's like a sick person saying that they're happy they're losing weight when they're sick because they're not eating it's like well you're not going to not eat once you start to feel better in fact you might eat even more and gain more than the weight you had lost back and that's potential potentially what could happen here depending on those lessons if there's lessons learned that do make us a little bit greener than we were before i mean there's a risk that the world will be even thirstier for oil and gas and people will want to fly even more. I mean, I think a lot of us are getting cabin fever. I, for one, am looking forward to when I can catch a plane and go, you know, go somewhere, go skiing or go to the beach. And and so I, I think this, this idea that um, it's good that emissions are down, it, it's, it's sort of beside the point because I think the long-term trajectory uh, is the same. And it really just underscores the fact that. We need to find a way to reduce emissions in an economically sustainable way, or otherwise it won't last.
0: And is, is there a, any risk of kind of like uh, you know obviously oil companies are reducing production in order because we have this like glut. Um, you know, is it hard for them to ramp it back up once once we everybody goes out and goes skiing again and all that?
1: Uh, yes, definitely. You know, on our our press our staff call just this morning, we hold a staff meeting every every Monday, and one of our healthcare reporters really emphasized that we turned off the switch of the global economy very quickly, but turning it back on will be much slower. And so, oil companies are shutting down some wells that they're not going to start back up again. And so that's why it leads some analysts uh, that I've talked to to predict. That in the years to come not till you know 2024 which of course in our time horizons now might as well be in a different galaxy um that we might see you know oil prices in the triple digits uh which would mean gasoline prices you know close to four dollars and that's hard to imagine now but you know economists economists say the lower prices go now the higher they'll be in the future and so i think that's a really cruel irony of this moment of time that we're in, that gasoline prices are through the toilet and that should be great, except we're not driving. And when we eventually will start to drive again, that there could be a bigger economic hit than there would have been otherwise. And so, uh, you know, I think that's... Just,
0: just for going back to the, the previous levels.
1: Correct. Right. And so it, it doesn't, it's not as quick of a turnaround as, as many of us would like. Um, but, you know, people are saving money right now by not filling up and not driving, but it's just not as much as they could have, you know, in that 2008 and nine economic crash, gasoline prices did not drop off. Uh, well, prices did, but gasoline demand did not drop off like it is now. And so I think this is just unprecedented times. And hopefully the actions we're taking now don't lead to negative actions in the future.
0: Thank you for listening to this edition of the Blue Economy podcast presented by Rhode Island, the Ocean State. And thanks again for bearing with us as we continue to work on mastering these remote recording processes. And finally, thank you so much to Amy Harder of Axios for taking the time. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or where, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to learn more, catch up on at past episodes or shoot us a note with your comments, head to our website, www.blueeconomypodcast.com or look us up on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. From Providence, Rhode Island, I'm your host, David Hirschman. Thanks for listening.